You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my good friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And uh, looking forward to today's reflections by Archbishop Sheen. Uh, We are continuing uh, this uh, series of talks that Archbishop Sheen gave during the Second World War, and uh, with a special emphasis on his messages for world peace. And um, he wrote in 1944 a book called The Seven Pillars of Peace, And uh, again, this uh, reflection today uh, gives a little bit of insight to that book. Uh, And again, talking about uh, the economic condition for world peace. And um, I think, you know, when we think of what are the answers to war, um, it's difficult. It's difficult because we're just so used to thinking that, oh, the war will end when, uh, you know, the... uh, the military powers um, kind of not so much annihilate uh, each other, but um, that someone has to just say, surrender, we've had enough. And that, uh, you know, might is right and the military forces win. But I then, where I think of how it's beautiful when two sides come together and say, I'm tired of fighting. I just want peace. I just want to uh, follow what our blessed Lord said, uh, his command to love one another. And so, uh, again, there is a way to do it. And it's not that often that we see those um, peace pacts based on the gospel. Uh, But we have to pray and act as if they will happen one day. Uh, But there is a a very important uh, sense of the economic and sharing that. And so we'll listen to Fulton Sheen uh, as he gives this reflection this morning. Um, And I want to also uh, add that uh, Fulton Sheen, when it comes to the sacraments and Mass and, um, again, just the beauty of the Church, uh, he does it like no one else, it seems. And um, I think of uh, a book I put together a number of years ago called Archbishop Sheen's Book of Sacraments, and where he explains the Mass. He explains holy orders. He explains uh, the glories of baptism. And I think sometimes we take the sacraments for granted, but uh, today we will share a reflection uh, where Bishop Sheen talks about the meaning of the Mass. And uh, this talk comes from a retreat he gave uh, a number of years ago. And so lots in store today. And uh, whenever you're listening, and uh, of course this uh, radio uh, program is being hurled, heard all over the world. And, uh, of course, Radio Maria USA, Radio Maria Canada, 
and uh, many other places too. The list is getting longer and longer each week. And again, thank you for tuning in wherever you are. Uh, and it could be morning, noon, or night. But uh, still, uh, the truth of uh, the gospel is uh, refreshing any time of the day. And uh, Fulton Sheen will share the gospel with us today. So I invite you once again to sit back and relax and enjoy uh, one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Sheen, as he gives a reflection entitled, The Economic Condition of World Peace. Please enjoy. This evening, the Catholic Hour again presents to the radio audience the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America, Washington, D.C. The title of Monsignor Sheen's talk is The Economic Condition of World Peace. Monsignor Sheen. Friends, I have always greeted you as friends. But this year, in order to concretize these greetings, we are preparing a booklet bearing that very title, whose aim is to combat anti-Semitism, bigotry, and anti-Christianity. It is yours for the asking. Notice that we never speak of anti-Christianity without also condemning anti-Semitism. For since God is the Father of all, there must be love for all. May I ask, therefore, that every Jew and Protestant and Catholic in the radio audience aid this goodwill by spending an hour a day in prayer. Catholics are asked to make it before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Please try. Last Sunday we spoke of the moral law, and today we begin applying it to the economic order. Next Sunday, we will apply it to the political order. The basic moral principle of the economic order is the right to property is personal. The use or responsibility of property is common. Of the two, right and use, use is more fundamental than right. We've become so used to emphasizing property rights that we completely ignore the fact that God made this world for all men. We neglect the fact that around each person there are various circles or zones, some very close to personality and others very distant. In the first zone closest to self are my right to things which are absolutely necessary. For example, food, clothing, habitation, the normal necessities of life, sufficient for self and family. In the next zone are those things which are relatively necessary because of the peculiar position or state of life or because one uses one's abundance for the good of others. But in the outermost zone are those things which are not necessary at all, luxuries, like yachts and racehorses. The repudiation of moral principles today has confused all of these zones or blurred them into one so that one uses the term my to cover them all without any distinction. For example, the modern man will speak of my food, my house, my car, my servant, 
my art gallery, my stamp collection, my private golf course, my Paris residence, and even my God, with exactly the same emphasis on my. As if the right in those outer zones of possession was equal to the right in the inner zones. And as if the possessive pronoun had exactly the same shade of meaning when I said my bread as when I said my stocks and bonds. The moral law, on the contrary, affirms that the right to property varies in direct ratio to how close or how far away these zones are to personality. The nearer things are to self, the stronger the right to ownership. The nearer the I, the stronger the have. As the nearer we get to fire, the greater the heat. That is why, incidentally, the right of a head of a corporation to a second million does not equal the right of a worker to share in the wealth which he has helped to create. The right to property, therefore, is not absolute and invariable. Now, in every well-ordered society, right and use are inseparable. For wherever there is a right, there is a responsibility for the way we use that right. For example, I may have a right to a cow. But if I allow my cow to graze in your victory garden and trample on your spinach, I must remunerate you. And when the cow dies, I must bury it. My right to the cow is bound up with my responsibility or my use of the cow. Now, this principle is very clear when we speak of a cow. But when you enter into modern industry, the applications of the principles of right and responsibility are not quite so easy. Now, the reason is modern capitalism has divorced right and use or right and responsibility. Great industries generally are not owned by one man, but by tens of thousands. No one individual, for example, owns over 4% of the Bell Telephone Company. The right is diffused through stocks. But notice the difference between the ownership of a cow and the ownership of a stock. Because I have a right to my cow, I am responsible for the way I use it. But how many who own stocks feel any responsibility for the operation of the corporation? Their only worry is to clip a few coupons and mail in a postcard authorizing a vote by proxy. How many who are stockholders in corporations are concerned as to whether the workers are receiving a living wage, whether their rights of collecting bargaining are recognized, or whether their hours are too long? The fact is that stock owners are concerned only with their right to property, not with their responsibility or their use of it. Under finance capitalism, therefore, there's been a divorce of right and responsibility or use. Those who own stocks do not manage nor assume responsibility. And those who manage or assume responsibility or work have no stock. As family life is broken down because of the divorce of husband and wife, 
So economic life has broken down because of the divorce of capital from responsibility and the divorce of labor from its tools. The result is that we have capitalists who never labor and labor leaders who are capitalists in the sense that they do not labor either. Thus, the two elements of private property which are clearly united in the ownership of a cow are divorced in the ownership of capitalistic enterprises. The owner of a cow could rightly claim all the profits from the cow because he owned it and he was responsible for it. But the owner of the stalks claims all the profits simply because he owns the stalk, though he disowns the responsibility. He has surrendered half of his title to profits, namely responsibility, but he nevertheless lays claim to all the profits. Now, this does not mean that the moral principle concerning private property is wrong. It only means that our system is wrong. I'll make it right. By granting to those who manage and work in and are responsible for the production of profits some share in the wealth they have helped to create. If a farmer keeps his right to the cow but surrenders his responsibility and care to a hired man, he at least ought to give that hired man a glass of milk every now and then. Now, Pius XI, elaborating on the moral law, suggests a partnership contract between capital and labor. And to such an extent that the workers share in some way in the ownership, management, and profits of industry. Now, this partnership involves three things. First, give the employees a right to participate in the management of industry. For example, by having one or more of their members represent them on the board of directors. Secondly, give the employees the right to share in the ownership of industry through, for example, special labor shares, which should not be subject to market fluctuation like capital shares, and which should give them the right to vote on the distribution of dividends. And thirdly, give the right to employees to share in the profits of industry over and above a just wage since they do more to create those profits than the money lender with his stock certificate. The advantages of this kind of partnership are many. If capital wants labor to become interested in its work, it ought to give labor some capital to defend. Man is willing to sit down on someone else's tools, but he's not willing to sit down on his own. And as regards labor, a co-partnership will restore the vocation of work. It will transform a factory from a place where men find fault to a place where they will have responsibility because they share ownership. The choice then is clear. Either we will diffuse the ownership of private property or we will destroy freedom. For the abolition of private property is the beginning of slavery. Wherever property is, there is power. Put it in the hands of monopolistic capitalism and capitalists will dictate how to vote. 
put it into the hands of the state, and the state will tell you how to vote. For as the great political figure once said, no one ever wants to kill Santa Claus. In a recent article in one of the most popular American weeklies not long ago, it was suggested that the American people must choose between individualism and collectivism. That is, between a system in which the individual manages everything without government interference and collectivism in which the state manages everything without individual interference. Now, this is not the true choice. There's a golden mean. Namely, one in which property rights are diffused through co-partnership. The state must guarantee the social security of its citizens, but it must not supply that security. Freedom from want must not be purchased at the cost of freedom in which a bureaucratic state becomes the world's caterer. There's a third thing besides the reign of money in society, which is capitalism, and the reign of state, which is socialism. There's a golden mean between a system in which capitalists get all the eggs and the workers the shells, and a system in which the socialistic state gets all the eggs and makes an omelet for us. And that system is one in which the hens are shared. And that is what we are advocating. Now, once you get down to rock bottom, what objection is there? That capital and labor should become shares in industry. Basically, there's only one. Selfishness. So long as there is no spiritual force to harness the wild, acquisitive instincts of men, at what point do you think that the capitalist will say, please, please, no more profits, I've had enough. I already made 78% on my investment. Can you imagine a capitalist saying that? As a matter of fact, I once heard a capitalist say, if this war goes on for two more years, I could make a million. Take labor. At what point do you think labor is going to say, stop now, our wages are high enough. Our hours are short enough. Do you think that will ever happen? One of the largest labor journals in the United States a week before Christmas had this editorial. Let us prove to the boys at the front that we can work harder and we can produce more for them. And then three days later, 125,000 of them went on strike. Given the unrestrained lust for money on the part of capitalism and labor, there will be no stopping until both die of their own too much. Socialism is no answer to the problem simply because socialism is not social. Any state which concentrates property in its own hands is the enemy of the people. And any theory which attempts to correct the irresponsibility of either capitalism or labor by making them both irresponsible has killed the free personality of man. And to cure this unbounded selfishness, the state has had to interfere with capitalism in order to preserve some semblance of common good. It may soon have to interfere with labor for exactly the same reason. So long as capital and labor regard each other as so much carrion, upon which as vultures they may devour their fill, the common good of a free and decent America 
will be only a cemetery wherein ghouls may feed on buried treasure. This is basic. The selfish, acquisitive spirit of capital and labor must be crushed if we are ever to have peace and security. But how crush it? One way is for the state to do it. That destroys freedom. That's the way the Nazis did it and the fascists and the communists. The Germany was at the top of exporting nations. For a while, fascism had the trains running on time. Communism had no more unemployment than Sing Sing. And for the same reason. But in killing selfishness, these systems kill free enterprise and free men. There's another way open to us. And that is the law of religion and the law of spirit. Namely, we must in some way see that the solution of the economic problem is not in the economic order, it is really in the moral. And that takes me back to the beginning. I'm now very impractical, suggesting that the solution of our economic problem has something to do with a return to the moral law and to God. There are many who will not like it, but men of goodwill will, because it will create an America where no man will claim a right without acknowledging a duty, where capital will do some labor and labor will have some capital, where the right to property will be personal and where the use will be common, where no one will recognize he is free until all are free, and where no one can be free until he submits to that truth of God which makes all men free, and in making all men free, makes them Americans. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, I want to welcome you back to the second half of our show. And uh, again, Fulton Sheen uh, gives some timely advice. I love how he talks about how, you know, labor and management need to get along. And uh, again, unions have come a long way. And yet uh, we know of the, uh, I want to just say the disparities sometimes in um, again, business uh, between management and uh, labor. And, um, you know, again, don't want to step on any toes here. You have to be kind of, uh, you know, be fair to everyone. But you had that sense that uh, Fulton Sheen was trying to say to people, uh, remember, who really owns your business? Is it God? Or is, and is he allowing you to uh, be the steward of that business? Uh, again, or is it shareholders? What, what is it? And so uh, having that conversation is very good. Um, and I think it was just that uh, idea of we have a conscience. And so, um, again, and God is watching everything. And so, uh, you know, that idea of sharing is caring uh, does go a long way. And I think uh, Fulton Sheen was truly trying to say, share the wealth, you know, that there has to be this uh, interest that the employee will work uh, more diligently if he knows he has a share in the company's profits. And so, uh, again, great ideas. And, of course, many companies have incorporated that. So, 
again, uh, just it's nice to hear that even though they were, um, you know, talking about that in 1944, um, it's still something worth talking about today in the year 2022. All right, we will now have uh, Archbishop Sheen give us a reflection uh, from one of his uh, many retreats, and uh, he will be talking about the Mass today, uh, but more uh, importantly, the meaning of the Mass. And, um, you know, it's nice to have this uh, catechesis uh, that Archbishop Sheen provides us, and uh, sometimes we just go through the motions, and... um, Again, do we ever have a refresher course? And so uh, Archbishop Sheen will do that little refresher course for us today. And so, again, may I invite you once again to sit back and relax and enjoy Archbishop Sheen as he talks about the meaning of the Mass. Please enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass and try to make it clear to you, if I can, I'm sure there are some young people here in this church who have said, I don't want to go to Mass. I don't want to go to church. I don't get anything out of it. Do you know the reason why? Because you don't bring anything to it. Now, some of you boys, for example, I am sure have mothers who are not the least bit interested in football. You say, come, Mom, look at this game. It's wonderful. She gets nothing out of it. Why? Because she doesn't bring any knowledge of football to it. Think of how many people would not go to an opera. They would find it boring. That's because they bring no knowledge of music to it. Just suppose that you were suddenly put down in the in Athens on the hill of the Areopagus. Would you understand it? Would you think, oh, this is where Socrates defended himself, and this is where St. Paul gave that great discourse to the senators of Athens. You'd have to bring something to Greece in order to understand it. And so certainly you'll get nothing out of it because you've made no sacrifice, no effort to understand what the Mass is. Very simply, what the Mass is, is reaching to Calvary and laying hold with your hands of the cross of Christ, with Christ on it, and you plant it down here, today. Whenever a Mass is celebrated, we take the cross and we plant it down in Nairobi, we plant it down in Tokyo, we plant it in New York, we plant it in this city. That's what the Mass is. The continuation of Calvary. And in order to take a part in it, you have to bring little crosses. Our blessed Lord said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Everyone has a cross. For example, you young students, you've got the cross of spelling, of mathematics. 
of obedience. And mother says, do the dishes. That's a little cross. And the older people have different kind of crosses. And we bring all of our crosses here and we plant them down alongside of that great cross of Christ. And we mash them all together under him. That is the mass. It has three acts. It's like a great drama. Just suppose that four or five centuries before Christ there was a great drama because that was the great age of drama. A drama presented that moved hearts, purged souls, which the wise old Greeks said was the purpose of drama anyway. But it was played only once. And if you were at that theater and your soul was bettered because you witnessed the drama, you would say, what a pity. Everyone in the world should see this. How could that be done? Well, it could be done by establishing road companies. New actors, same lines, same drama, but appearing on the different stages of the world. Apply this now to the death of our Lord. This drama was played once. But the night of the Last Supper, our blessed Lord said, I am going to prepare this drama so that it will be enacted all over the world and hearts will be purified and souls purged. So he established road companies. As he said to his apostles and his priests, do this, repeat it. Same lines, same purpose, only the stages are different. We will now follow the three acts of the drama. In the first act, you offer yourself to Christ. Act one. Act two, you die. You die with him. Act three, because you died with him, now you get new life. Act one, where you offer yourself as the offertory. Act two, your death with Christ, the consecration. And thirdly, rising to a new life is Holy Communion. Now follow me through these three acts. Act one, you offer yourself. You bring yourself to Christ and say, I want to be one with you in your great act of redemption. When, I, when a mass begins, the Lord looks out from heaven and he says, I can't die again in this nature I took from Mary. This nature is glorified. But Peter, Paul, Mary, Anne, will you give me your human nature? Offer yourself to me and I will die again in you and let you pass through the same stages of life as I passed through. Now, how do you offer yourself to the Lord? Not just by being present. Not just that, but by 
using symbols of bread and wine. So when the bread and wine is brought to the altar, you are brought to the altar. Why did our Lord say, bring bread and wine? Well, first of all, because no two substances better signify unity than bread and wine. As bread is made from a multiplicity of grains of wheat and wine from a multiplicity of grapes, so we who are many are one in mind and heart with Christ. Then furthermore, when we bring bread and wine, the substances which have most traditionally nourished mankind, when we bring that which gives us life, we're bringing ourselves. And then we're also bringing part of creation. We're, we're taking some elements out of creation, namely bread and wine, and we're saying to God, these are going to be wholly yours. And someday this, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Everything in creation will be totally subject to you. But this, this is the first fruit of total giving of creation to Christ. So in the offertory, therefore, you become present on the altar. You are on the paten. You are in the chalice. Under the form of bread and wine. That is your symbol. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons the collection is taken up at the offertory is to be a symbol of your self-sacrifice. It buys the bread and wine, helps the sacrifice. You see, if I were pleading for a collection, that's the idea that I would develop. But I'm not. But I merely want to indicate to you now that you're on the altar. That's the end of Act 1. Now we come to Act 2. You die. You are crucified. We cannot live to Christ unless we die to our lower nature. So our Lord now is representing his death at the consecration, and you are with him, so you die with him. Now I will tell you how that is done. First of all, how do we represent at the consecration of the Mass his death? Now think about this. How did our Lord die on the cross? By the separation of blood from his body. Here were great fountains, fountain in hand, right and left, fountains in the feet, the fountain of the heart. And the very last drop of his blood came from his body with the piercing of the pericordium, the heart, so that our Lord was practically drained, therefore, of blood on the cross. And he died by this tearing apart of blood from body. For as the Old Testament puts it, life is in the blood. 
Now, we reenact this death by the separate consecration of bread and wine. The priest does not say at the altar, this is my body and my blood. That would be life. But first, this is my body. Then over the wine, this is my blood. That separate consecration of bread and wine is like a tearing apart, a rending asunder of blood from body, and that is the way Christ died on the cross. So we sacramentally reenact the death of Christ at the consecration. But you are with him. So you have to die with him. Die to that which is evil, to pride and lust and envy and gluttony, sloth, avarice. At the moment of consecration, therefore, you have to say the words of consecration in their secondary sense. The primary meaning of the words of consecration we know. This becomes the body of Christ, this becomes the blood of Christ. But there is a secondary meaning. And at the consecration, you should be saying, as every priest says, when I consecrate the bread and wine, I always have not only the intention of making present the body and blood of Christ, but I say to myself, as you must say, this is my body. This is my blood. I care not if the accidents of my life remain, my duties, my avocation, my responsibility in life. These are species. Let them stay as they are, but what I am, substantially, body, soul, intellect, will, I'm thine, O Lord. This is the totality of myself. I die with you. That's the consecration. So you're dead with Christ. But no one ever dies to Christ without receiving new life. Now we come to the communion, Act 3. And this is one of the beautiful mysteries of communion. To understand it, I'm going to let you view nature. In the springtime, if the sunlight, the phosphates, and the carbons in the earth could speak, they would say to the plants, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. If the plants could speak, and the grass of the field they would say to the animals, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And if the plants and animals could speak, they would say to us, unless you eat me, you shall not have life in you. And Christ says to us in communion, unless you eat me, 
you shall not have life in you. And the law of transformation holds sway. Chemicals are transformed into plants, plants into animals, animals into man, and man into Christ. We now, therefore, have his life in us. This becomes, then, the great moment of love. We've died to that which is lower. Now we're going to have the higher life. And this higher life involves, as in marriage, lover, beloved, and love. The husband gives self to wife, the wife gives self to husband. Out of the lover being defeated by the love of the beloved, there comes the ecstasy of love. And what the union of husband and wife is in marriage, that communion is to the spirit. The union of our soul in Christ, lover and beloved, produces the ecstasy of love. This, then, is the third act. It has another aspect, which I will pass over quickly for a matter of time only, and it is forgotten aspect. When we study theology, it's hardly mentioned. In scripture, it's mentioned constantly. And that is that when we receive communion, we have to bear this death of Christ in our lives. We constantly have to deny ourselves in order that the Christ life may emerge. Now see how nature represents that. If the grass and the lilies and the roses could speak, uh, they would say to the, to the air and to the sunlight and uh, chemicals, would you like to live in me? I'm a plant. You're only crystals. Well, you can't live in me the way you are. You have to be changed. Die to yourself, then you live in me. The animal could speak, it would say to the grass, you cannot see, you cannot taste, you cannot move from place to place, you cannot change from sunlight to shadow. I can. I have a higher kingdom than yours. Would you like to live in my kingdom? Not the way you are. You've got to be taken up from the earth, ground beneath the jaws of death, and then only can you live in my kingdom. To the animals, we say, you cannot think, you cannot scan the heavens. I have a higher life than you. Would you like to live in me? Then submit yourself to the knife, shed your blood, otherwise you cannot live in my kingdom. So our Lord says to us, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot, not you will not, you cannot be my disciple. Communion therefore is not only the taking in the life of Christ, as I explained, and incidentally, for the students of biology, 
let me tell you that the first process I described is the anabolic. And the sacrifice which I am now describing is the catabolic process of nature. So now in the in St. Paul, we have this second element of communion. St. Paul says, Know you not that as often as you eat of this bread or drink of this chalice, you announce the death, the death of the Lord until he come. So communion, therefore, is an incorporation to the higher life of Christ, but inasmuch as we have to go back into the world, we're going to take with him our death. This is the Mass. Do you know that I believe that when we go before the judgment seat of God, our greatest regret is not that we were more faithful to the holy sacrifice of the Mass? What a blessing is our faith. Now, I have no reason to assume, absolutely none, to assume that you good people are not at Mass every morning. Every morning I've been here, look at the crowds. Now, I'm glad to see that you people are, are attendants at daily Mass. This is marvelous. I wouldn't come back some morning, sneak up on you to see if you were here. I wouldn't do that. I just assume that you would be. Now, I hope I've made this clear to you, young people especially, what the Mass is. Always think of it as three acts. And how you are united with the cross of our Lord. But since I, I have been tiring to you, and even at the risk of keeping you a little longer, I'm going to tell you a, a story about the Mass and the Eucharist. This incident happened in China. A bishop was arrested by the communists, put in prison, and he told one of the missionary sisters to whom he gave the tabernacle key to remove the blessed sacrament from the chapel. It was on the second floor of his house, lest it be defiled by the communists who would take over his residence. The bishop was in prison for two or three years. He wasted away to skin and bones, wore a black stocking cap, a black kimono, was too weak to stand. During the few moments of the day they were released from the prison. In the prison yard he had to be supported by two fellow communist, or rather Chinese prisoners. The nun went to the chapel, took the Blessed Sacrament, but she hid it in a loaf of bread. And as she closed the door of the chapel and was about to come down, a communist colonel came up the stairs and said, I'm taking over this house. I have the key to the chapel. He tried to open the door and it would not open. 
He said, here, you open it. She said, I can't. My hands are filled with bread. Put the bread on the stairs. She said, the stairs are dirty. Then give me the bread. She said she reached him, the blessed sacrament hidden in the bread, with such reverence and fear that he laid hold of the loaf as if it might have been a baby. But he cocked a gun in case she should turn on him. And then he gave back the blessed sacrament. The nun was later on put in prison, beaten with rods, and underwent a kind of a bloody sweat from the terrific agony. Finally came the death march, and the bishop was put out in the march between two fellow Chinese prisoners. The communist colonel took a sack that was loaded with perhaps stones, weighed about 20 or 30 pounds, and tied it on the bishop's back, and then tied the rope in such a fashion that the weight would tighten the rope and he would eventually be choked to death in the march. But the communists would not kill anyone. The sister who told me this story was back in the line of march and she saw the communist colonel tie this bag around his neck and she broke the line of march and she said, don't do that. Look at the man. It was a kind of an H.A. homo. And the communist colonel looked at her and then to the face of the bishop and seemed to see pain for the first time in his life. Then he called her a dog and told her to get back in line. She watched the weaving of the prisoners as they made their death march. And after a, a mile or two, she caught sight of the bishop, still supported by the two fellow Chinese prisoners, but the sack was not on his back. It was on the back of the communist colonel. I said, why did the communist colonel take it off his back, off the bishop's back? And she said, because he once carried the blessed sacrament. The last we know of that communist colonel is that he was put in prison for helping the bishop. The bishop died on the death march. The sister today is still bearing the effects of it. And this bishop in prison, she told me, used to read Mass. He was the only one in prison who was ever given wine. Not through any act of charity on the part of the communists. This was just divine providence making it possible for him to say Mass. And she said, no Mass in the Gothic cathedral, surrounded by all the pomp of liturgy, could ever equal the beauty of this frail bishop, full of prison vermin and sores, leaning up against a wall with a tin tray, a loaf of bread, and a small glass of rice wine. Moving his fingers over the tin tray, and then pronouncing the words of consecration, and during the day, secretly giving communion to prisoners who had pronounced the right word.
the code word, which was the same code word in the early church, fish. Why fish? Well, the Greek word for fish is ichthos. And in our letters, I-X-T-H-U-S, ichthus. And in the early church, the I stood for Jesus, the X for Christus, the Theu of God, U for we are Son, S for Sator, Savior, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. Then I could tell you, too, of the way that Mass was read at Dachau, under the threat of the Nazis. And how priests underwent every kind of torture to make it possible to offer the holy sacrifice at the Mass. You're really assisting at Calvary. Realize its meaning. For there's a law that runs all through nature. We live by what we slay. The food that we have torn up from the earth, the animals that have been butchered, we live by what we slay. And through the marvelous paradox of divine grace, we who have crucified Christ by our sins now through the mercy of communion live by what we have slain. God love you. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, is that not a great way to end a talk and how uh, we in this very unique way uh, get to eat what we have slain. And it's a funny paradox to think that, again, it is our sin that put our Lord on the cross and that he died for our sins. Yet, in this very beautiful mystical way, he feeds us. He feeds us with the Eucharist. And so we are a blessed people. We truly are. So let us remember that. And to know that, again, we need to remind ourselves often about Calvary and the Mass is Calvary reenacted. And, of course, uh, the book that Archbishop Sheen wrote many years ago called Calvary in the Mass. Uh, again, it is still available today and a great treasure. Uh, I know that uh, I've republished it uh, through my little Bishop Sheen Today publishing arm. And it's also included in one of my anthologies, uh, simply entitled Lord Teach Us to Pray. And it's available through Sophia Institute Press, and in fact, I've um, been blessed to put together five such anthologies that uh, share the power of the cross, the power of prayer, the power of the sacraments, the power of God's love, and of course, understanding uh, the uh, answer to world peace through, uh, again, our Lord's passion, death, and resurrection. So, again, lots there. Uh, the website for Sophia Institute Press is simply sophiainstitute.com, and there uh, they offer our Radio Maria audience a 25% discount uh, when you use the promo code SHEEN25 when you check out. Again, that's SHEEN25. And so uh, they have uh, nine 
uh, titles from Archbishop Sheen, along with many other great authors that, uh, of course, you will recognize. So uh, if you buy two books, and it doesn't matter uh, who the author is, uh, you will get that 25% discount when you use the promo code SHEEN25. And so again, sophiainstitute.com for, uh, again, where these fine Sheen anthologies can be found. Well, our hour has come to an end, and it's been a real joy to share some of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Sheen with you, and so I'd ask you to invite a friend to join us next week. And so until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.